welcome to the Harvard College of Business podcast with your hosts, Sarah Gascon and Curry Dias. Today's guest is Bill Allen, senior partner at CEO.Works. Allen, a longtime human resources executive and consultant, is a 1980 Harvard graduate. War Eagle, Bill, and welcome to the show. War Eagle, Sarah and Curry. How are you all doing today? Yeah, we're doing great. Thank we, you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate you joining us today. You bet. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about how you found yourself at Auburn. My arriving at my destination at Auburn was a, a little bit of a journey. I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida after, you know, af, after living in the Northeast Massachusetts and New Jersey for, you know, the first five years of my life. And I spent the first two years at a, a little uh, liberal arts school in, in Deland, Florida called Stetson University. And, and after a couple of years, it sort of felt a little bit too much like high school. And so I was looking, I was looking around for another, another place to go to school. And I, and I had wanted to, to uh, study human resources and called personnel and industrial relations at the time. And, you know, Auburn was the school that was sort of closest to home that um, had a good reputation that my parents would uh, sign up for. And I ended up in Auburn um, on the 1st of January of 1978, um, driving right into an ice storm. That was a quite, quite, the, uh, quite the introduction for this Florida kid. Yeah, especially being from Florida. Yeah. So, so tell, me, tell us a little bit more about HR and the complexities of human resources and how it's evolved over time. Yeah, human resources has uh, has evolved over time. There there was no human resource function before World War II. Essentially, um, you know, during the Depression and during uh, FDR's administration, there were a lot of sort of labor laws that were passed, um, a lot of regulation, um, and then of course after the war, all the GIs coming home um, and going into the workforce somebody figured out that, you know, we need somebody, we need a function to, to go ahead and manage all of this. Um, and the human resource function was born um, in a very simple state back in the 40s, you know, to sort of ensure that, uh, that the workforce was, had what they needed to go to work every day. That evolved over time, I'd say it was probably fairly static and fairly simple through the 50s and 60s and maybe even to some extent during the 70s. A lot of it was labor relations, a lot of it was benefits and compensation and the base, basic stuff. But in the 80s, the world started to change and you know the, the world became much more globalized. America's sort of post-war complete dominance of, of business started to change and American companies started to look at all these markets in different parts of the world say, geez, you know, there's opportunities to grow there. And that, you know, that sort of continued on through the rest of, you know, the century. And, you know, around the beginning of, you know, of, of the next century, around the year 2000, things started to change even more because it became the digital age and the, and the knowledge age. And, you know, the workforce started to change and the human resource function had to change with that. So now we're operating in a digital global um, environment. And, you know, now we're, we're experiencing even more change with changing demographics, changing social concerns, changing geopolitics in a very, very big way, which is still playing out um, and impacting supply chains, 
and a number of other things. So, you know, really have been sort of, we're sort of on the, on the verge of human resources, call it, you know, 4.0, and it's going to continue to continue to change. Um, the one thing that does make, you know, human resources so interesting is that it's one of the few functions along with finance that really has an enterprise-wide view of what's going on with the business, both internally and externally. And it makes, makes it very, very interesting. And, you know, because, because of that, and because, you know, as a human resource executive, you're responsible for two things, you know, number one, developing and running and leading a great function that's going to deliver what the business needs. And then you're also responsible for making money, you know, and working with the, the, the leadership team to make money. So because of those two requirements, it makes it a very interesting and B, you know, pretty challenging at times as well. So that's sort of the evolution of human resources. I, I started my human resources career in, you know, 1981, right after I graduated um, from Auburn and, you know, was in the corporate world for 35 years, grew up essentially at, at PepsiCo, a great academy company for human resource people, as well as a lot of other people, a lot of other functions. Um, and then became the chief human resource officer at three listed companies. One, the, the biggest airline nobody's ever heard of, Atlas Air Holdings. Number two, the biggest shipping company that everybody's heard of, Maersk, you know, which has a great presence on the Auburn campus and the business school in particular. And then number three, the biggest department store that everybody's heard of, which is Macy's Inc., you know, which includes Macy's, Bloomingdale's, and Blue Mercury. Um, so it was a great career there. And sort of retired from a uh, corporate career in, you know, in 2016 and I've uh, been doing a lot of work in, you know, private equity and a lot of consulting and that sort of stuff since then. So it's been been a great run and a, and a great position to see a lot of change, not only in the, in the business world, but in the world in general. Yeah, Bill, your story is really, it's really incredible and, and we think compelling to our, our audience, the uh, you know, the current students and recent grads, your career has taken you overseas and um, you have, uh, you've had the opportunity to be the rock star of human resources um, on multiple continents in several countries. Um, and who doesn't like to travel, especially when they're young, right? Especially so, when they're young. There's a lot to unpack in, in your story. And obviously, careers like yours, they take time to develop. Uh, what are some of the things that set you on this path from the beginning that are maybe actionable items that our listeners can put to work right now? Well, first, first and foremost, my dad taught me this. He said, there's only two decisions in life that, that really dictate, you know, how easy or difficult your life might be. The first is who you decide to get into a committed relationship with, who you decide to marry. And, and the other one is, what you decide to do for work. And if you get both those right, things are likely going to be pretty good, you know, barring some sort of tragedy or something. If you don't get them right, you know, then things aren't going to be quite as easy. And, you know, fortunately for me, I got both of them really, really right. You know, my wife and I have been very, very happily married for 34 years. And, you know, we've got two wonderful kids, none of whom went to Auburn, unfortunately. And then I had had this had this wonderful career. So that sort of loving what you do is important because you've got to do it for a long time. And when you love what you do, you're much more likely to be really, really, really good at it. 
and that applies to any career that you might choose. Second, I would say you've got to make some decisions about trade-offs in, in, in life. So we've moved around quite a bit. We lived in Europe. Um, I lived down in the Caribbean for a period of time. You know, my Two sons have lived in 10 cities, um, which wasn't always easy. And the main reasons for, for us moving were my career. So, you know, you got to decide what you want to sign up for and then figure out what the trade-offs are that you have to make because there's trade-offs to everything. Absolutely nothing in this world is per perfect. And you just got to decide what's most important to you and then make your decisions from there. How do you know you're building the right type of company culture for the future of your business or organization? And how influential is the human resources department in creating that culture? Great question, Sarah. You know, what I, what I would say is the, the first thing is you, you have to understand your business and you have to understand the kind of people that you need to run your business successfully. And then you have to build a culture that's going to attract those people. You know, throughout my career, there were sort of ups and downs in the, in the labor force. There was times of very high unemployment and times of very low unemployment. You know, and I think, you know, we're, we're here for a period where there'll be very low unemployment. So people are going to be able to be even more choosy than they have been in the past about where they go to work. And the things that are important to them are a couple of things, at least number one, going to work every day, you know, with meaningful work on a team in a business that has a plan to win because losing isn't very fun. If you guys are athletes, you know that I mean, losing kind of really sucks to be frank. Well, that applies to work as well. I mean, if you go to, go to work, you want to be in a place where, you know, you have a winning team. The second thing is you got to have a boss who's going to help you reach your potential. And when you put those two things together in an organization and you know you create the right culture to attract attract the kind of people that you need to win, then amazing things happen. Um you know I had the good fortune to work for two really really remarkable companies in my career. Number 1 was PepsiCo Frito-Lay division in particular. Um, and then number two was Maersk, you know, the giant shipping, I mean, at the time, energy company. And, you know, those were companies created a culture where the very, very best people in the field wanted to come to work and did come to work. And, you know, the other companies I worked for were great companies as well, but those two were sort of exceptional in terms of the culture that they built to be able to attract the right people, you know, to come to work and win every day. So, I mean, you know, when you're able to do that, it's really, really fun. Who were some of your, your mentors or role models uh, that really helped shape the career that you've had and your leadership style? Yeah, there, there, there are several mentors, probably, and role models. You know, the first, first one was my father, who was an HR executive for the RCA Corporation for years and years and years. And, you know, I've got a very, still have a very close relationship with him. He's going to be 94 years old in, in December. So, you know, we talk every week and see each other as much as we can. You know, that was, that was one. I had a number of mentors, you know, during my sort of formative years at PepsiCo, including a guy by the name of Dave Lozer, who was 
who was my boss, a line boss, as well as an HR boss. And then, you know, sort of growing, growing through that, you know, the, one of my mentors was a fellow by the name of Bill Connolly, who was the head of HR at, at General Electric for, for quite a long time. And then there's all sorts of business leaders that I really, really enjoyed working with as well. So, you know, it's important to build those relationships uh, because those relationships are ones that, number one, help you learn. But number two, you know, help you get through the tough times. I mean, you know, everybody in their career has some times that are great and relatively easy. And then sometimes that are really, really hard because you're dealing with, you know, difficult issues. So those relationships are super important and it's super important to sort of think about who your sort of kitchen cabinet is of people that you can pick up the phone, say, Hey, listen, I've got this problem. Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to get your point of view as to how, how you might approach it and any advice you have for me um, and use that, use that network because those doing these, doing these jobs is hard. You can't do it all by yourself. Just to follow up with that, um, so you can't do it all by yourself. And you know, we we talk about leadership, we talk about mentorship all the time. Um, but to that point, uh, you can't do it all by yourself. If there was one thing that you by yourself could change about the human resource field as a profession, what would be that one thing? Great question, and you're putting me on the spot, Curry. <laughs> um what would what would i change what i would what i would change is i would sort of across the board you know encourage the hr professionals you know to sort of elevate their view of themselves as people who can create impact and create change as opposed to just providing service we provide service but we also should be providing leadership across the across the business when i say leadership it's leadership by understanding you know what we can uniquely do to create impact to create the teams that um, are going to help our business leaders win every day um, so you know said another way we shouldn't be shy about what we can do and and what we should be able to do um, to help build winning teams and help build a winning business is the purpose of the HR department also to just stay focused on the mission and the vision of the company while also assisting the employees that are working within the company? Yeah, the purpose, the purpose of the HR function is to, is to first and foremost create competitive advantage by working with business leaders. That's number one. In doing that, there are a number of different facets some of them that are focused on getting the right people in the right jobs and creating a work environment where people can come in and do their best and ensuring that they've got good leaders to work with and leaders that there are standards around what a good leader is and what a good leader isn't and what the consequences are for you know having bad leadership. So that's that's part of it. There's also part of it that is around risk management, ensuring that, you know, that a situation that occurs in the workplace is addressed properly um, so that so that the risk of number one, sending the wrong cultural messages is addressed. And number two, then any external legal risk or regulatory risk is addressed as well, because I mean, you know, nobody wants you know, to see their company in the newspaper for having, you know, a bad leader who's done something bad and it's created created a problem, an image problem and a 
sort of morale problem within the company. You just can't have that. And these days, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, people thought they'd keep things secret. You can't keep things secret with everybody walking around with an iPhone these days, you know, because it can be recordings, it can be all sorts of things, uh, chat boards, et cetera. So really at the end of the day, I mean, the, the reason the shareholders are, are funding, you know, an HR function is to create competitive advantage, A, but part of that is ensuring that you manage risks, you know, to your reputation, to your culture, because you just can't tolerate that. You can't tolerate that. And when you've got a when you've got a bad leader in the organization, there's only one thing that you must focus on, and that is getting them out and getting them out in a way that, you know, minimizes the risk um, in the organization. One of the things Sarah and I were discussing prior to talking to you was what motivates employees? I'm sure you've seen a, a huge shift. Uh, at least we've been reading a lot about the shift in employee motivation. In that shift, or in your experience, do they care more about compelling work or productive work? And how do you ensure that both of those types of employees are fulfilled under one roof? Let me just ask this question. I understand what compelling work is. What, what do you mean by productive work? I mean, somebody like my dad who worked in a manufacturing plant, it didn't have to be fulfilling. There wasn't like, you know, any you know, social responsibility to the community or anything like that. Just you go in, you get your hours, you get your paycheck and that's that. And, you know, you stick with your job for 20, 30, 40 years versus I think a more modern way of looking at it is people want to do what makes them feel fulfilled. And it's less about the money and it's more about um, how their impact. You know, what I, what I would say, Curry, is people care about doing work that is fulfilling, no matter what sort of role they play in an organization, I think. What, what, I, what I mean by that is the, the best organizations actually go to great lengths to ensure that everybody understands what they're doing to help the team win, whether it's on the factory floor or in a call center someplace or in an accounting department someplace or as a sales rep someplace. You know, I once had a CEO who said, you know, I, I, want, I want everybody to understand, you know, what they can do to help us win. And, you know, on the factory floor, that's one thing, ensuring that, the, that it's safe. You know, ensuring that there's as little waste as possible, ensuring that the product, you know, meets the standards. So, you know, I, I, I would say that I don't really draw a line between compelling and productive um, because you got to have both. You got to have you got to have people, you know, who get things done, but get the right things done and understand that what they're doing is really, really, really important. I mean, anybody comes to work any day thinking that what they're doing is not important. It's because they probably have a leader who hasn't helped them understand what they do is important. How difficult has the transition into more remote work or hybrid work been for a human resource department? Sarah, I don't, I don't know how difficult it's been. It, it, I think it depends. I think I think that it's been a real challenge for leaders everywhere because 
they are, are seeing each other in the office and have a conversation in the office in the hallway or wherever it might be, then, you know, I think not being in contact with people face to face, um, at least some part of the time, it makes it really, really challenging. And I, and I think the world in general has not done a good job of teaching leaders how to do their jobs differently in sort of a remote slash hybrid workforce um, workplace. You know, you've got to you've got to be able to connect with people, and you've got to ensure that your expectations are clear. People have to be able to give feedback and ask questions. Um, and I think I think the sort of remote hybrid um, workplace has made that much more difficult. But I also think that many companies haven't done a good enough job sort of equipping their leaders to operate in the new environment. And you know that. I think is sort of contributing to not not solely, but contributing to sort of the quiet quitting talk that you hear going on, yeah. you know, the mass resignation talk. And quite frankly, it's all pretty real. I mean, both both of my sons have changed jobs in the past 15 months, you know, and and they had they had good jobs. They went to jobs that they thought would be better for them. So I, I think it's a real I think it's a real issue. I don't think we're ever going back to 40 hours a week. Um, or more um, in the office, you know, for, for the vast majority of the workforce. So it's time to adapt and adjust, you know, in, a, in an ever-changing world. What is it that lights your soul on fire and makes you want to get out of bed and do what you do every day? Um, as I look back in my career, the things that were highly motivating to me um, were, were number one, the opportunity to work with really, really good colleagues and, and interesting and challenging businesses and make an impact. That and sort of being a, being a, a good husband and a good father uh, to, our, to our two boys, you know, were sort of the things that, you know, got me excited to get out of bed, you know, early in those dark mornings, particularly in the winter in Denmark and go to work. And, you know, it's, it's great. You know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, if you love what you do, there's a very good chance you're going to be good at it and um, you're going to get a great deal of satisfaction out of it. So I think uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's choices that you make um, based on the choices that are in front of you. And not everybody has equal choices, but making those choices, you know, based on, on what you think is going to be satisfying to you, most satisfying to you across a number of um, different criteria is really, really important. Bill, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. How can our listeners keep up with your journey and contact you? Hey, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I've written quite a number of articles, um, you know, and, and they're not, not only on my LinkedIn, but they're on CEO Works, you know, which is the, the place where I'm a senior partner today, uh, working with some really, really interesting and, and, and cool people and good friends. Um, so that's probably the best way to keep in touch with me. But thank you very, very much for having me. See you guys again. Yes, War Eagle. War Eagle. Harvard, inspiring business.